Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Continuing forward in the book of Acts, chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 20 today, our verses of focus. I'll be reading from verse 1 through to verse 27. Please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now... God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Lord God granted the prophet David to know of the coming reign of the Messiah, a reign that would be from God's right hand in heaven. David knew back then the word the Father would speak to Jesus, his son, 
at his enthronement in heaven. I believe that was in AD 30. After his ascension to what Daniel calls the Ancient of Days. Listen again to Psalm 110, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. That's why I chose the title, Christ Rules in the Midst of His Enemies at Ephesus for the title of today's sermon. Because in today's text, we see, we see the rod of Christ's strength going, going forth out of Zion, out of His church, most particularly via Paul, whereby the rod of Christ drives out demonic forces effortlessly. Where Christ wields His rod, even clothing from a saint becomes as death to diseases and demons. Furthermore, an even greater power is on display here in today's text. Greater even than driving out demons effortlessly. Because we'll see the rod of Christ crack open hard hearts by the fear of God falling upon His church in that city. Transforming Ephesian rebels into His kingdom volunteers in this one of his days of power during this age of Pentecost. Demonic enemies and human enemies are placed under Christ's feet in today's text. Oh, well, that was then and this is now. You might be tempted to think. I hope not. I think we should also remember the prayer prayed some 30 years earlier in Jerusalem by that germinal just coming up band of believers experiencing the church's first severe persecution after the church's first great time of growth. You remember the prayer, Acts 4, 29 and 30. It's a way to even categorize everything that we see happening in the book of Acts since then. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So surely we also see the Lord answering this fervent prayer in today's text. So I hope that as you listen to today's sermon, you'll ponder the similarities between Ephesus then and our nation today. And also ponder the similarities between the church then and the church today. But mostly think deeply about the Lord Jesus Christ and who He is and that He still reigns at God's right hand. He's still seated there. And He's still doing the same thing. He's still defeating His enemies, still turning rebels into His glad volunteers today. And I, and I want you to ask yourself also today, and, and this needs to be considered by, by every Christian, do the demons know your name? And, and if so, do... Do they laugh at you, working in your own impotence, still clinging to your pet magic books? Or do they tremble at you because of your union with Christ as you love God and others in the power of Christ? So when demons see you, do they tremble and flee? Or do they laugh? So let's look at the overview of today's sermon, and then dive in. We'll see that God works unusual miracles, healings, and demons swept aside effortless, effortlessly. And this is contrasted to a, a neck, another group of individuals, these foolish, itinerant Jewish exorcists, and a specific example is given to us of these pitiable seven sons of Sceva, mocked, beaten, and terrified, rightly so. And the impact that God brings forth on the entire city of Ephesus through this great fear. The word spreads. They can't stop the spread of the word. And people are brought into dread of what is happening. And in this, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is magnified in that city through these events. God reveals the power 
of the Lord Jesus Christ over all the demons of hell and all their silly magic incantations. And this leads to widespread public repentance. And we'll note, this is in God's church. This brings repentance in God's people who've been discipled for two years by Paul. And this is when we hear this wonderful phrase that the word of the Lord grew and mightily prevailed, grew mightily and prevailed. All of this took place. And it's not until all of this takes place that Luke, by the inspiration of the Spirit, says that the word of the Lord had grown mightily and prevailed. We all need to have the right idea of what revival really looks like and what it really is. And then, of course, some questions to. For each of us to look at our own lives and to take this personally. So first, God works unusual miracles. Healings and demons are swept aside effortlessly. The text says, now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought forth from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. You turn the light on Darkness goes away. Is there a battle between light and dark? You just turn the light on and darkness goes away. This is what God is doing. God is the one, we are told, who worked these miracles. It is God's power and it is God's will that matters here in today's text and every day. It's not Paul's will. It's not Paul's power that heals diseases and drives away demons. Paul knows this. Are we in this way like Paul? Aware that it is all of God? Commentary says it was not Paul that wrought these miracles. Remember Paul said, what is Paul? What is Apollos? But it was God that wrought them by the hand of Paul. He was but the instrument. God was the principal agent. The rod of Christ comes forth out of Zion, out of his church. He chooses to work through his people who are walking closely with him. Note also that this move of God occurs after the word of God has been preached to all who dwelt in Asia. This move of God via Paul's hands confirms the word of God has been, that what he's been preaching is the word of God. So what's occurring by the touch of his hands is confirming the message from his mouth. We can learn from this. Because what do we do to prepare for revival? We walk in holiness before the Lord by His grace and we preach the Word of God that it may be spread amongst all. The seeds of God's Word would be planted in the minds of everyone that we know. Commentary says, God confirmed Paul's doctrine by miracles which awakened people's inquiries, fixed their affections to it, and engaged their belief of it. That is God's Word. Now, We need to talk about these miracles, okay? These types of miracles, Paul says himself in in both Romans and 2 Corinthians, I'm going to quote 2 Corinthians 12, that God himself, through these miracles, he is bearing witness to the world at that time that Paul's preaching is the very salvation taught and accomplished by Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. Paul is faithful to Jesus. He's preaching the same message of Jesus about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. You know, it wasn't reported to us by Luke that this happened in Corinth, but it did. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So these great miracles that take place then, these are signs to that age that apostolic prophetic oracle from heaven via man is underway. Hebrews 2, 3 and 4 puts it this way. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? So it's the same message. And was confirmed to us by those who heard him, the eyewitnesses, including the apostles. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. So when we see these amazing miracles being described to us in the Scriptures, 
We need to connect it to God bearing witness to the message of Christ being brought forth by those who witnessed him, those who are his apostles and prophets who wrote the New Testament. These types of signs and miracles accompany the time frame in history when the canon is open. And these types of miracles, not that God does not continue to do miracles, I'm not saying that, but these types of miracles, these sign miracles, are done. There's no need for this anymore. God has testified to his word. It is finished. There's no need for these types of sign miracles any longer. Of course, God is God. And he does miracles still today in all kinds of forms. Now, these are not just everyday miracles that make you go, wow. These are out-of-the-ordinary miracles. These are unusual miracles. They're most astonishing. And, and what's going on here is that it's clearly revealing the infinitely greater power of God over and against the pitiable impotence of human efforts against death and disease and against the demonic forces of hell. No power on earth can resist angelic beings. It's like an ant trying to resist a wildebeest. It, it's a joke. And the seven sons of Siva bump into that wildebeest today, as we will see. And you will too, if you're not careful. And understand what's happening here in this text, that it can happen in your life as well. You see, Ephesus, we see God working uniquely in Corinth and uniquely in Athens, uniquely in Thessalonica. God knows what each area needs when the gospel comes into that region. The message is the same, but the way in which God works will vary. The outcomes will be the same. People being converted and sanctified and made like Jesus and cultures being transformed. You see, Ephesus was renowned for its magic for its sorcerers, for its witches, and for its warlocks. And it boasted Diana, the Roman goddess, and Artemis is the Greek version of that false god. And they boasted her as their great goddess. Now I'll tell you, it is my opinion that mythology is telling us some lies about what probably really happened in history with the demonic elements that set themselves up against God and set themselves to control mankind. And the false worship of these gods is very likely on display. And, and recall, we learned that these beings, these angelic beings, not talking about demons right now, but it's the same category of beings, control weather. And natural forces that we see, like it's nothing for them. So, so you think Poseidon and Zeus just popped into the mind of fallen men? So this ancient city, Ephesus, was the Roman Empire center for occult practices and for the worship of Diana, this fertility goddess. So it wasn't just magic, it was also occult practices and all the immorality associated with it. And God shows up and reveals... That there's no power. Neither Diana or any of their magic books can match the power of God. They've got these almost endless troves of these magic books that are supposed to be providing all of this power and control over life. And Paul throws away a head cloth and drives the demons away. God does it through him. There's a message here for us. And again, you can even see Paul, like knowing the word of, of the Lord Jesus, he's not focused primarily on the fact that the demons obey his word, but he's focused on the fact that his name is written in the book of life. He knows that's the greatest miracle of all, and he's busy about calling souls in. It's as if Paul doesn't even know that these miracles are happening. Think about it commentary about Ephesus says the emphasis on magic and power in that city 
may also explain the emphasis on rulers and authorities in the epistle written to this region, to Ephesus. We see that phrase, rulers and authorities, referencing these demons, these fallen gods, chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 6. Paul knows what he's dealing with here. Now, he doesn't go head on against Artemis here like he did against the python spirit in Philippi. He knew for some reason that he wasn't called to go head on. Back to the commentary, it certainly indicates why such unusual miracles take place here in this city. God is shown to be gracious in the face of the people's misunderstanding, meeting the needs of these people at their own level of understanding. You know, the statue of Artemis had certain symbols that were used as magic formulas. And these incantations, these rules in their magic books could make, could leverage certain laws of relationship between humans and demons to get some temporary control of demonic elements. God chose to do this through the hands of Paul. You know, God could have done it anonymously. He did not. He did it through Paul to testify that his church on earth is to be taken seriously. Now this is an ordinary set of miracles. You know, it's like many of the miracles accomplished by Christ and his apostles. It's kind of what you expect. Laying on of hands is the typical way, if you will, that God would work a miracle through one of his apostles or prophets. The human agent is present there physically with the afflicted person and physical contact occurs so you could see how such a miracle to the ignorant, like in Ephesus, could suggest to them that the power comes from Paul himself. And in fact, they were accustomed to seeing this kind of thing. And it's very likely they would have just said, oh, look, another exorcist, another magician, another sorcerer. So God turns it up. God says no. And says, let's see what happens with a handkerchief or an apron. And so there's this like, everyday clothing from Paul. This isn't like some, you know, big priest headset or, <laughs> or some special ritual thing that he was working with, you know. He didn't have his call center set up to where he could wipe the sweat and then send it off and get, you know, get payments through the call center. Like, you know, these exorcists were in it for money. They're a great example of, of the lying deceivers that are present in the church today. So here comes probably these sweaty, I mean, who knows, maybe they were clean, but I imagine they were probably just taken and taken to the people. And who knows, maybe it was just, they didn't even know it was going to happen and somebody took it and some sick person had it and got healed. We don't know. It seems like it was not planned. We can say that. Paul didn't need to know about it. He didn't need to be in the presence of the person who was healed. So we can say that there was zero effort put forth on Paul's part. Because God does all the work. You know, you've seen these people on TV and they, they get all fired up and they put their hands on people and, they, mm, and they're like, mm, they're really gritting and showing all this effort. No, it's not how it works, brothers and sisters, in the kingdom of God. It is not the effort of men. Yes, we pray fervently. We do. But it's not the effort of men. Paul demonstrates this to us. It's almost as though you could see him eating his meal and go, oh, really? Somebody was healed? Praise be to God. Look at his power. So even the ignorant will look at this and think, wait a minute. It can't be Paul. There has to be something else going on here. And we also know that it's Paul's clothing and Paul's hands in order to confirm Paul's messages, like we said before. He chooses not to work anonymously here. And that's given to us in Psalm 110, that Jesus chooses to express his rod through his people, through his church. We see elsewhere in Scripture that we being his body, he places his enemies under his feet and our feet, because we are his feet. In the earth. A precedent with Jesus and the woman with the 
hemorrhage suggests that only a garment needed touching. The unusual character of these people and their beliefs about magic leads to the unusual form of the miracles. Paul also notes such mighty works, as I've said, in 2 Corinthians 12 and Romans 15. That God is the source of these works is important to Luke. Paul is but a mediator of God's power, which attests to God's approval of Paul. But you should be asking yourself as we're moving into this, what's different about Paul and these Jewish exorcists? What's different about them? And who are you more like? So, these diseases were of every kind, and the diseases just left the sick, and the evil spirits went out of them. Surely some of them had diseases and evil spirits, and experienced a double blessing. So God is demonstrating to this town, it's a large city, 200,000 people uh, there in Asia Minor on the western coast of what is today Turkey. He's showing them that His Son, Jesus Christ, has conquered sin, death, and the devil. And He did this on the cross when He took upon Himself the sins of His people so that the demonic elements thereby have no foothold upon you. You are marked out as His and the devil cannot touch you unless you give him and his forces legal ground in your life. So we want to think about that as we go through this. The many miraculous healings of the human body show that the body will be resurrected one day and that sin will not have the final say over the body. So these diseases are a synecdoche a part for a whole, showing that death has been conquered and what led to death, sin, and thus sin has been conquered. Because you can't conquer death unless sin is also conquered. The casting out of so many demons shows forth the devil's kingdom is destroyed easily when God moves. So what we see here is a demonstration of the comprehensive conquest of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fullness of the salvation he achieved on the cross when he shed his blood for his people. Commentary says, Now was fulfilled that word of Christ to his disciples. Greater works than these shall you do. We read of one that was cured by the touch of Christ's garment when when it was upon him, and he perceived that virtue went out of him. But here were people cured by Paul's garments when they were taken from him. Christ gave His apostles power against unclean spirits and against all manner of sickness. We see that in Matthew 10. And accordingly, we find here that those to whom Paul sent relief had it in both those cases. For the diseases departed from them and the evil spirits went out of them, which were both significant of the great design and blessed effect of the gospel and the healing of spiritual disease and freeing the souls of men from the power and dominion of Satan. So we learn here some of the precursors to revival. And I hope that we'll consider these things in our own lives. So what about this next category, these foolish, itinerant Jewish exorcists? Surely they're unbelievers, but in a sense they also represent to us apostate, those who are still in the church, if you will, They're Jewish, um, but they're not believers. They're tares amongst the wheat. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So these are very foolish people. Uh, They travel from town to town. That's what children, so when you hear the word itinerant, that means moving around from place to place. The uh, old language would be uh, a wandering vagabond. Uh, That's a great word, isn't it? A vagabond. And so what are they doing? They're traveling around. They're trying to gain fame. It's almost like the snake oil salesman. They want fame. They want wealth. They're not in it as a ministry of service and love. This is clearly contrasting with Paul because what's going on with Paul? He's been set in Ephesus now for how long? A week? No. A month? No. For years he's been there. 
proving his character, proving his love, and proving his commitment as a demonstration of Christ's commitment to the people of Ephesus. They were Jews, but vagabond Jews, were of the Jewish nation and religion, but went about from town to town to get money by conjuring. They strolled about to tell people their fortunes and pretended by spells and charms to cure diseases and bring people to themselves that were melancholy or distracted. And I'll add to that, it may well be that there was some sort of magic, some sort of demonism taking place through their hands. They took it upon themselves. Did Paul take it upon himself? It's like Paul didn't even know what was happening. Brothers and sisters, this is a dangerous thing to engage with demons apart from Christ. These foolish exorcists believe they can call themselves to fight demons. And they believe their formulaic, man-centered approach can ingest the name of Jesus Christ and profanely use Him like some trinket. It's no wonder we see the Lord Jesus turn them over to an enraged demon. We see their formulaic incantation. It's presumptuous. It's based on human effort. And it is a part of all the magical spells and demonology that is present in our world since the beginning of human time. And it's particularly nasty here because they're using the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in a sorcerous way. We exercise you, they say. This is human will and human power on display, and Jesus has a lesson coming for them. And, and you know, if we think the same way, he, he will have a lesson for us as well. He will, he will teach us lessons that involve embarrassment and being wounded. So Luke brings forth this stark contrast between Paul and these Jewish exorcists, between the power of God and the impotence of man. Can you see that's what's on display here? This contrast. Where are you in your life as we consider the differences? So a specific example comes to us with the seven sons of Sceva who are mocked and beaten and terrified after they've been wounded. Embarrassed. There were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That does not sound like the rod of Christ going forth in power, does it? That sounds like the power of the devil. Like we sang, in a mighty fortress is our God. That is the outcome for all humans who try to go toe-to-toe with the demonic realm. Apart from Christ. So these seven sons of Sceva, we're told that they are sons of a Jewish chief priest. Think about how far the Jewish nation has fallen. Not just seven unrelated people, not just seven unrelated Jews, but seven Jewish brothers. The entire household from the home of a chief priest. Where honor should be most on display, it is particularly grievous to instead have wickedness prevail in that place. Commentary says, It is sad to see the house of Jacob thus degenerated, much more the house of Aaron, the family that was in a peculiar manner consecrated to God. It is truly sad to see any of that race in league with Satan. Their father was the chief of the priests, head of one of the 24 courses of the priests. So what happens? They go in all full of themselves, taking this thing upon themselves, armed with their new trinket and their profanity, and the evil spirit mocks them first. Who are you? Does the evil spirit leave this man? No. Does the evil spirit appear to even take greater control of this poor man? Yes. Speaking through this man, the demon says, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but who are you? And I would tell you, probably there's never been a movie made that's as terrifying as what these seven men went through in that house that day. Using the name of Jesus Christ without faith in Jesus Christ is not only powerless, 
But it is wicked. It is an affront to God and it is dangerous. Naive and self-reliant, these seven brothers wade in and they will be placed under the feet of this demon. All seven of them under the feet of one man. They took upon them to call over evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, not as those who had a veneration for Christ and a confidence in His name, but as those who were willing to try all methods to carry on their wicked trade. Oh, do you see that when we invoke the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ and our hearts are not behind this invocation with love and adoration towards Him, and a desire for His glory that we become like these foolish Jewish exorcists. When our motives are wrong in praying in Christ's name, there's not much difference between us and these Jewish exorcists. The possessed man wounds them and strips them naked. Do these... Does this demon flee away like happened before in the other case? No. The demon maintains control of this poor man, speaks through him, and leaps upon the seven brothers. And that's a picture of them being placed under the control. Instead of being bound, Jesus said, we must first see the strong man bound. This demon is not bound. The strength in one possessed man overpowers seven men. This is superhuman strength of demons on display. You can think of other episodes. The demoniac who kept breaking the chains off of himself. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, demons are real. Demons possess human beings. And demons can bring this type of destruction into this world through that kind of possession. Instead of being trampled underfoot, this demon vanquishes seven grown men, subduing them so completely that all of their clothes are ripped off their bodies. And they are given visible wounds. They are wounded. And they are so terrified that they don't care and they run out of the house naked to their utter and complete embarrassment and the shame of their whole family. Think of it, seven grown men naked and wounded. They're so terrified that they run outside into the public square in Ephesus naked. They'd rather be that embarrassed than spend one more moment in the presence of this demonic power. Brothers and sisters, I hope this will instruct us that terror is inevitable when brought face to face with the unleashed power of demons. Let us all take this as a warning against faithless or unrepentant use of the name of our Lord. Let this be a warning to any of us about secret pet sins. What are the magic books that you have hidden in the shelves of your heart, in your mind? What are the books in your home that need to be removed? Commentary says, this is written for a warning to all those who name the name of Christ, but do not depart from iniquity. The same enemy that overcomes them with his temptations will overcome them with his terrors. And their adjuring him in Christ's name to let them alone will be no security to them. If we resist the devil by a true and lively faith in Christ, he will flee from us. But if we think to resist him by the bare using of Christ's name or any part of his word as a spell or a charm, he will prevail against us. The primary work of the devil is as a deceiver. The devil is the father of all liars. And the chief way that the devil works in those who give him a legal foothold is to deceive them. To deceive them about themselves to deceive them about those around them, to deceive them about the state of the world. To leave them in partial darkness is a great victory for the devil and may very well be why we're still waiting for revival 
in our world. You see, all of Ephesus hears about this and fears, and the name of the Lord Jesus is magnified. When God moves in this kind of power, think of Ananias and Sapphira. The, the fear of God becomes a very real thing, not an academic idea, as it should be for every single person that walks this earth. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. So this, this message cannot uh, be stopped. The story is told to everyone in Ephesus. Everyone hears the story of the naked seven men beaten and wounded by the demon. They all know of it. So first Paul's message has been confirmed by the great miracles through him and now by the great defeat and embarrassment of the Jewish exorcists who even try to use Jesus' name. This amazing set of events is told throughout Ephesus and people have to be thinking, well, why didn't the name of Jesus work? Why does it work in Paul's case and not in their case? And then you have to begin to think about a true union needs to be in place. This is a call to faith through this story that God's laid, this, these set of events that God lays before their eyes. An intense fear falls on every person in Ephesus. Reminds me of the fear that fell upon the land of Canaan as the people of Israel came into the land. The dread of God is a very real thing. And when it happens, it's thick like a cloud in your soul. So God grants for the fear of the seven sons to spread throughout Ephesus. These people are afraid and they are looking for relief from their dread. Their confidence in their magic books and their exorcists and their temple and their Artemis and their whole way of life is being undermined at this point in time. The whole world is being shaken because it's a world that can be shaken. And they want to find a place that is unshakable. That men were terrified, the fear fell on them. So in this instance, they saw the malice of the devil whom they served and the power of Christ whom they opposed, and both were awful considerations for them. They saw that the name of Christ was not to be trifled with, nor his religion compounded with pagan superstitions. God does this to magnify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in seeking relief, the people of Ephesus come to magnify, to augment, to glorify, to focus upon, to consider more deeply, to be mindful of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They learn that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth and that he alone has power over these vicious, powerful demons. And it's not a power that is at all tested by the strength of these demons by whom he was, by whom this Jesus, the one who created these demons. The one who at the beginning with God was present. All things, right, being created through him, we are told. These demons, no exception to that. There but clay in his hand. His faithful servants cast out devils and cured demons without resistance. So now it did indeed appear to be the name above every name, as Paul says to the church at Ephesus later. So now comes this great demonstration of revival. Widespread public repentance takes place. And if you read about true revival, you will see that this takes place in culture after culture. Men burn their books. Men leave behind their lives of wickedness. They don't want to have anything to do with it. They make no provision for the flesh. They cut it off. They leave it behind. They're done with it. They are gripped by such a fervent desire for the holiness of God that anything that would even touch that in some unclean way is as filth and refuse to them. Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the fear of God at work in believers. They tell their deeds publicly. They could have done it at home. They don't go into the confessional. They come before the church and they tell the church of their evil deeds. They confess their evil deeds publicly. These are believers who've been living in sin. And the fear of God falls upon them and they say, I've been trifling with the name of Jesus. And they say, it is His grace that I haven't been beaten and humiliated like these seven sons of Sceva. You see, this Ephesian culture was so daily in magic and demon worship, so much so, now listen, that the term Ephesian writing was used throughout the Roman Empire to reference magic books. So if you heard Ephesian writing anywhere, it meant it was a synonym for a magic book. Just like to Corinthianize is at that time synonymous with the vilest of perversions, Ephesian writings synonymous with sorcery. Okay? So this is the home of all these books. Now, you know, today, printing a book is not a big deal. Getting a new one is not so hard. But think about back then. And think about these believers who'd been under this intense discipleship with Paul that we had discussed at the school of Tyrannus. Learning the ways of God. Hearing the Scriptures month after month. Day after day, he was preaching to them, giving them the Word of God, and they were still living in sin. They treasured up their magic books just in case. But there, became a, there came upon them a, fal- a palpable fear. This brought into their soul by the work of God Himself. No preacher can accomplish it. It must be only by the rod of Christ going forth in the hearts of His people caused them to come into a more, much deeper and much more serious and personal consideration of their own souls and their own jeopardy. They took the warnings of the Word of God personally. They were not easy believers saying, oh, well, you know, I'll just sin and God will forgive me. They realized the dangers of trifling, of trampling underfoot the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this move of God within them caused them to loathe their sin and to find themselves horrified with it. And they came to hate it and the evil books connected to it. And they wanted a permanent and complete break from the devil's kingdom. Many that had believed and were baptized, but had not then been so particular as they might have been in the confession of their sins, were so terrified with these instances of the magnifying of the name of Jesus Christ that they came to Paul or some of the other ministry, ministers that were with him and confessed what evil lives they had led and what a great deal of secret wickedness their own consciences charged them with, which the world knew not of. Secret frauds and secret filthiness. They showed their deeds, took shame to themselves and gave glory to God and mourning to others. These confessions were not extorted from them, but were voluntary for the ease of their consciences upon which the late miracles had struck a terror God had brought a hot and burning weight of holiness upon the souls of these believers. Has that happened to you? Note this. Where there is true contrition for sin, there will be a real confession of sin to God in every prayer and unto the men whom we have offended when the case requires it. You know, there's nothing quite so powerful as nausea and vomiting. There's few things that change human behavior faster than going through the horrors of a gut illness. This is spiritual revulsion that these people are experiencing. God gave them that kind of loathing for this wickedness and for their own sin. They burn their valuable books of magic in the sight of all. We see that when God does this work in a human soul, that pride is cast aside. They don't care what people think. They take public action because the most important thing to them is leaving this behind. They've lost any concern of whether people have 
a certain way of thinking about them anymore. They've taken on the clothing of Christ more fully. They don't care about wealth. They don't care if they end up impoverished. They don't care about the wealth of this world. When, when, when God brings this kind of fear, He gives you a taste of the value of your own soul. And nothing can compare to that. And you want to cast aside anything that gets in the way of your soul being saved in His hand. So they despise any earthly possession that threatens their soul. So once, what once was treasured, who knows what kind of rationalizations they used, becomes to them as refuse to be burned. This great bonfire is a, a real message to us. If my people who are called by my name. That's what happens here. This is 50,000 days of work. Based on research, it appears as though one of these pieces of silver was likely a single day's wage for an average earner. 50,000 days wages. One pastor stated it was probably around three to four million dollars in today's numbers. But who knows? We know it was great wealth and it was burned right there in the middle of the city in front of everybody. And Demetrius saw it and it terrified him. Alexander didn't want any part of it. They knew that Jesus Christ overturns all of the ways of this world and destroys economic systems built on wickedness. Because the people of God don't care about the wealth of this world except as a tool for His great kingdom. We are the masters of the wealth that God gives to us as stewards unto Him. Oh, may that be true for all of us, brothers and sisters. We see them displaying their hatred, their hatred of the sinfulness and malice inside those books and their own prior love for it. Commentary calls it a pious revenge on those things that had been the instruments of sin to them. Things that were detestable. Think things that were now detestable to them even though they had been delectable in the past. They wanted the whole world to see. It also shows their fierce determination to never return to this foul world of demons. What did Jesus say along this line? If your eye causes to, you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. They were so fully convinced of the evil and danger of them that they would not throw the books by within reach of recall steadfastly resolved never to make use of them again because they knew they might change their mind. So they burned them. This teaches us that those who are truly repentant of their sin will keep themselves as far as possible from the occasions of it. This has been very convicting to me, brothers and sisters, as I've considered this in my life. We also see here that their love for others is greater than their love for money. Get here, Judas, right? Just sell it. I mean, we'll get the money for the church. Who could tell into whose hands these dangerous books might fall and what mischief might be done by them and to them? So they commit these books to the flames to show their hatred of sin, to show their determination to not go back to it and as love for their brethren because they, they want all of this knowledge erased from the face of the earth. They want the connection to the demonic realm to be done forever. Sorcery, witchcraft, to be gone from the face of the earth, as we all should. There's no place for profit in these books. They are to be burned. Now we come to it. So the word of the Lord grew mildly and prevailed. This is Luke telling us this is what happens when the word of God grows mightily. And prevails. Everything that we've just seen. And we're going to see some more. Part two of Jesus' rod and effect. As we see the response of the 
demons and the evil institutions as we move ahead next week grew mightily and prevailed. I want us to take note that this statement is not made right after the description of unusual miracles or healings or effortless demonic ejections, nor is this statement made after the seven sons of Sceva were so effortless, effortlessly embarrassed by an evil spirit. Further, this, spirit is not, this, this statement is not even made after the fear of God fell upon the entire city and the name of Jesus was magnified. The mighty growth and victory of the word of the Lord is not proclaimed by Luke through the Spirit, but by the Spirit's inspiration until after all these things that I just mentioned, plus confession and demonstrated repentance. You know, we, we, don't we just want to have these great, you know, wonderful miracles take place and assign... A great miracle is when you hate your sin. When you loathe your sin with this kind of passion and you take steps to break yourself away from it for good. That's when we know revival has come. Until then, we should not expect to see this kind of cultural victory until the people of God have been through this kind of repentance like what we see there. When strong corruptions are mortified, vicious habits changed, evil customs of long standing broken off, and pleasant, gainful, fashionable sins are abandoned, then the Word of God prevails mightily. And Christ in it goes on conquering it to conquer. So a few questions for us to consider today. In what ways the culture in which we dwell, is it like Ephesus or Corinth of that time? And in what ways have you, like these Ephesian believers, been steeped, marinated in this culture where your sensitivity to sin and uncleanness has been rubbed effaced, whittled down, and your love for holiness dulled. Why was Paul used of God in, in preaching and in miracles? Why were the Jewish exorcists unsuccessful, harmed, and terrified? These were the questions in the minds of those Ephesian believers at the time, and these are the questions that should be in our minds today as well. Why? What is different? I mean, if we look at the fruit of the church today, do we have to say that, could it be that we're way more like these Jewish exorcists than we are like Paul? If we just look at the fruit of the church today? And if, that's the, that's, if that is the case, and I don't know if it is here or not, but if that is the case, what pet sins do you need to burn before God? And you know, the commentary calls them um, fashionable, uh, pleasant, gainful. You know, these are obvious things, this, this magic, this sorcery. And, and we need to do business with that too, because so many of the games, the video games, the books, the movies that we watch are wicked celebrations of these things. And you're trifling with evil if you mess with those things. And I'm convicted by this. There will be a change in the things that we watch in our home as a result of this. But it may not be as obvious to you because we've been steeped in so many fashionable and pleasant sins in our world today. Can you cry out with David and say, show me if there be any unclean way within? What pet sins do you need to burn before God? What sits comfortably polluting the shelves of your heart? Another way to ask this is, what footholds have you given to the devil? I hope you will see. I think we tend to think just in terms of, oh, I'll be saved or not. And it's true. If you sin and ask God's forgiveness, He will forgive you in Christ. But do you know 
that if you willfully sin against God and keep doing that, you give a foothold to the devil. You keep that book on its shelf that he shows to you inside your life, and it won't be just a book anymore. It'll be a band of demons coming to harass you and your family. Yes, Christians can be harassed by demons as servants of God to teach us lessons. So what footholds have you given to the devil? Do you see the connection between your sin and the spiritual state of your home? Dads, moms, brothers and sisters, cornerstone church members. Do you see the connection between the spiritual state of your home and your walk with God? The spiritual state of this church, this building, this place right now, and the connection with your walk with God. You know, the Bible tells us that angels are in our midst. That's a joyful thing to consider, isn't it? But as much joy as that brings us, we should also pause and be very sober-minded and consider, are there demons in our midst that we have given a foothold to through our stubborn, unrepentant, stiff-necked relationship that we have with God? I should say stiff-necked. Thank you for that humor, Lord. Turning this the other way, we are, to be, we are to be motivated by fear. Fear is a good motive. Okay, It's not wrong to be motivated by fear. God gives us that, and it's helpful. But do you desire to walk in joy and fruit, fruitfulness in this life? Do you desire to experience the kind of contentment and peace that we see in the life of Paul? Just doing God's will. And it's like wherever he goes, the demons just fall down and run away. It's like what happened when Jesus would come into a town, all the demons would start screaming, the Son of Man, the Son of God has come in our midst. And, and they're saying, please don't throw us into the abyss. We want to be a part of that, right? We want to experience the nearness of Jesus in us. The nearness of Jesus in us. Drawing near to Him. He will draw near to us. And there will be power. The countenance upon us. We see if His face shines upon us, there's victory. Do we want this joy and this power? Or do you want to be dragged down by your sin? Are you satisfied with the status quo? Are you satisfied with where you are in your life right now? Where the church is? Where this world is? When you think of today's text, do you see God's sovereign power and love for His church on display? You see how the how the Lord Himself kind of orchestrates this whole thing to happen and brings all these events to pass for the sanctification of His church and the deepening of the glory and the holiness of His bride. He's making His bride spotless, we are told. That's what He does. Has God changed? Do you see God's judgment on His enemies in this text? Has God changed? So what do we do? How do we, how do we go forward? Brothers and sisters, Paul demonstrates to us the simplicity of Christian victory. We walk in His love daily. We share His Word. We, we pray to Him. And we wait upon Him and we rejoice whenever He shows us our sinfulness. We're not touchy with one another as we help each other grow up in Christ. We're not prideful and resistant to the Lord's correction in our lives. And we grow like Paul. We see Paul growing in our love for the Lord and our service to Him. Each day, each day we serve Him, and each day we do His will. So we don't want to overcomplicate this, trying to come up with some grand list of things that need to happen. We need to repent of our sins, and we need to trust in Christ. We need to understand the battle, the enemies that we face within and without, 
and go forth in Christ expecting transformation, expecting victory over his enemies, and expecting growth together and that the word of the Lord would then, then mightily prevail in our lives, in our families, in this church, in every church throughout the whole world. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you, Lord, for your word to us in this day. Lord, we acknowledge that uh, we see so many of these same types of sins and immaturities in our own lives and in the church today. And we look to you, Lord Jesus Christ, and we cry out to you to bring the fear of God upon us, to bring forth your rod out of Zion upon the demons of hell and drive them into the abyss, and that your people would rapidly, through the accelerated hand of your power by your Spirit, be sanctified, transformed more and more, that we indeed would gladly burn the books, whether they be real things that need to be destroyed or pet secret sins in our lives. We would be done with such things, Lord, and instead worship you and have the fear of God as the fire of our souls. In Jesus' name.